Susan Romsdorf Terry and Luke Romsdorf Terry, and welcome to The Cat Who Did a Podcast, where we read a book from the Lillian Jackson Braun, The Cat Who Murder Mystery series, and then we talk about it. And today's book is The Cat Who Turned On and Off. Now, this book was first published when? 1968. And this, by the way, is the final book before the officially unexplained hiatus of 20 years. I always thought that she had more books before the hiatus, but it was only three, really. Only three. That That's really interesting. And we, like you said, it's we don't know why there was the hiatus. There's never been any official reason for the hiatus. Um, again, Lillian Jackson Brown is very private. I mean, again, let's point out the fact that she let people incorrectly state the date of her birth four years, making her <laughs> older than she was. I mean, it, it wasn't like she she erred on the side of making her three years younger. No, no, she was three years older by these until 2005. So the, the woman had her reasons. Um, maybe career, maybe family, million other things. We don't know. But um, one thing we will talk about when we get to the next book is what got her back into writing, which is great. So, but this is the book that is that that is the last thing she writes before she takes a twenty-year hiatus. Wonder what she did in those twenty years. Who knows? Had a career, had kids, oh, remarried. Um, we do, live, laughed, love. Who knows? We. Please. <laughs> it is. I mean, she probably did, but we, we don't need. To we don't need to get into that. No, exactly. That. So, nineteen sixty-eight, uh, mm-hmm. and this. Then, of course, the cat who turned on and off. So, let's jump right in the synopsis. Well, first of all, is there an audiobook of this? Uh, yes, there is. We're still back in that it's only available on CD. Same guys doing it. Uh, nothing, nothing new and interesting about this one. And one of the audiobooks, unfortunately, they're just not as easy to access unless you still have a CD player. Which you know, I'm still frustrated that my car doesn't have a CD player anymore. Whereas mine does. Has a six CD changer. Oh, it's fancy, just fancy man. Just but yes, a CD player is fancy. <laughs> we'll go with that. That sounds good. All right. So this one, this is still set in the as of named metropolis correct which is a chicago chicago yes we are still we are still in the metropolis of no name except for the name that luke's given it anyway so uh-huh. go right ahead with the synopsis my dear all right so our synopsis. Oh, hold on hold on sorry spoilers yes if, if we haven't mentioned before we're going through the whole books these are spoilers again these books are 50 years old if you haven't read them by now we do recommend that you know you sit you read them you read them you enjoy them and then come back and listen to what we thought about them so then you can give us commentary and feedback about what you thought about them let's be fair they're not 50 years these these three are 50 once we get to the next one they're going to be more of our age which is you know <laughs> they're only going to be 30 years then they're only going to be like clo- th- 30 closer to 40 years old so yes versus 50 closer to 60 uh, yeah yeah doesn't get any better anyway, anyway sorry so i've interrupted you enough the cat who turned on and off I am going to preface this by saying this is not one of my favorite books in the series. Mm. Um, it is, it, so it it took me a little bit longer to read through this one and then even longer to go back and write the synopsis. So you studied on the synopsis for this one for a long time, much comparatively. Longer, much longer than I did on the other books. Um, it, it's it's rough coming from a book that I love and really enjoy as much as The Cadbury Danish Modern to mm-hmm. compare it to this one. So let's see if we can figure out why. So we start this book with Quill about to be homeless again. Uh, and while the cats remain fed in high style, the same cannot be said for Quill. <laughs> he manages to hit upon an idea of doing a Christmas among the antique dealers in a neighborhood called Junktown in hopes of winning one of his newspaper's major cash prizes. This is a $1,000 prize, which in the 1960s, no small change. That's no small change any day. Yeah. And so he's lured in by the promise of some crazy characters by attending an auction of the possession of a recently deceased dealer. There he meets Iris Cobb, 
who offers him said deceased dealer's former apartment. And while he's there, he bids and wins his first ever auction item, a typewriter, which is said to be missing only the Z. Turns out it's missing the E. One is less, one is uh, much One worse. is much worse than the other, exactly. yes. Now, is this going to play a factor later on? It is. Ooh, it is. all right, all right, all right. It's, it's, a, it's a tiny little clue that she drops. It's actually really clever. Interesting, um, okay. He is then lured by the best apple pie he has ever eaten and the promise of more good food to come. And he moves into <laughs> Iris Cobb's uh, apartment, which quickly, which he, where he quickly learns that the deceased, Andy Glantz, was the quote-unquote goody-goody of Junk Down, and his passing was particularly gruesome. He fell to his death from a ladder onto a spiked finial, which is the decoration from the top of a roof. So imagine a ball with a, you know, foot and a half long spike on the top of it. Good God. And that's what he fell off the ladder onto. It, it was not it's a, a pretty... Mortal Kombat fatality I or something? Guess. Jeez. I guess. Not not pretty. No. And to, uh, to, to combine that, he also smashed the crystal chandelier that he was trying to retrieve. Oh, no. And make it even worse, he was found by his girlfriend, who was another dealer in Junk Town. Oh, so, everybody's so bit... he had a very bad day. Very bad day. His girlfriend <laughs> had a bad day. Everybody Jesus. had a bad day in Junk Town. So the girlfriend, who's known as the dragon, not necessarily affectionately, <laughs> but her actual name is Mary Duckworth. She's the one on the street who sells actual expensive antiques, which puts her a little out of step with uh, her less pedigreed neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, and she is, of course, on the younger side, attractive and totally uninterested in pursuing him. So Quill is immediately, of course, intrigued by her. To contrast this, Mrs. Cobb, Iris Cobb, oh, this character, we'll talk about it later. Oh, um, you, you have some thoughts on Miss Cobb. I do have some thoughts about Iris Cobb, um, and it's really sad. But anyway, oh. Iris Cobb in her first appearance is described as plump with fat knees. <laughs> because the, the size of the knees is important for a, character development. I really have to wonder if Lillian Jackson Braun had really great knees and was told this by enough men so that she made it a thing for the women in her books. Because, because you're right. Quill talks about knees a lot. Maybe he's a knee guy. Who knows? Everyone's got their thing. I who knows? He's got it. He's he's very clearly a knee guy. Clearly, based on all of his descriptions. Plump with fat knees. That's yes. Anyway, she is of course saved by the fact that she is an incredible cook. In general, a very loving, wonderful person, and mm -hmm. the way that she's written throughout any throughout all of the novels, and she does get a few more appearances. Interesting, um, really. Yes, we'll talk again. Looking I said we'll talk about this later. Um, I, again, I have looking issues. forward to this. He meets Mary Duckworth and her and her slender knees, um, <laughs> and he's he's trying to get an angle on Andy Glantz and who he was, and you know, knowing that this is the ex girlfriend and this is the dealer who passed away yes, that he's now living in his apartment. He's now living in his apartment. He's trying to get a handle on him from the from the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. But while he's there, he also gets intrigued by a huge iron ornament, which is supposedly from the, the gates of a Scottish castle, mm. because he recognizes the crest as a Macintosh crest. This is the first utterance of, my mother was a Macintosh. This uh. runs throughout the entire series. This is This book, even though I don't necessarily consider it one of my favorites in the series... It sets up so many things. We meet Iris Cobb. Mm -hmm. We see the first. We we see this thing from the Scottish Castle Gates, which again runs through the books and his we heritage hear, too. From and we start to hear Quill talk about his his mother, mm. who is you is an unseen character that very clearly influences him and how he lives his life throughout these books. So this is the first in incident we've got of any kind of Quill's real past. Interesting. Um, with his mother was a Macintosh and why this, this giant piece of iron 
means something to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have to say that for a man who claims he doesn't like antiques, Quill gets the bug pretty darn quickly. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's already bought an antique typewriter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's looking at this giant piece of iron that he is eventually going to buy. And he starts interviewing the other shop owners in Junktown, and he's learning that Andy was generally disliked for his goody-goody nature, especially by Iris Cobb's husband, Cece. Cece. Yes. Cece Cobb. Cece Cobb. Okay. I have to ask, is my favorite name character in this book? And you know who that is. (laughs) Unfortunately, no, we don't get Odd Bunsen. No! (laughs) I'm sorry. He comes back in the next one. Okay, good. Good. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) And now we get... get I'm asking the important question. We get the random appearance of a photographer called Tiny, who's, of course, six foot three and the size of a linebacker. Who knocks into very expensive things, and it's a whole thing at the option. Sounds like um, me going antiquing with my parents when I was in high oh school. God. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was a thing. <laughs> anyway, back to Cece Cobb. Cece Cobb. So, in comparison to Andy's quiet, goody-goody nature, Cece is loud and brash, but he is determined to get the street recognized by the city of a place as a place of interest. He's tr- he's been trying for years to get the street recognized, to try and, you know, get antique streetlights put up, um, put up, you know, fancy signage, to try and make it a whole themed thing. And the city is fighting him every step of the way. Now, Huge it, frustration. A place of interest, not a his, like a historical marker. It should be historical marker. Okay. All of these houses that they're talking about are written as... Um, you know, nineteen, you know, Victorian mansions, mm. not nineteen, whatever, but Victorian mansions, sure, lots sure. of history. It it becomes a very important uh, point that the Cobb House, where they have their shop and their apartments and everything else, is the the house of a famous uh, of a famous abolitionist. Mm. Interesting. So that becomes a thing. Um, you know, they they talk about one of the houses is the house of a uh, a famous mayor of the city with no name. Things like that. The houses themselves are are important, and they are historic, but they're not being preserved. Hmm. And the city keeps threatening to tear them down. But it's been 10 years that they've been threatening to tear them down. So Cece's trying to turn it into a place, and that's then that's his thing. Andy, however, once called the police on Cece and got him fined for, quote-unquote, scrounging, which <laughs> is uh, a term for breaking into a condemned house to remove any valuable pieces before the house is torn down. The justification for that, as they say in the book, is, you know, the city doesn't care. The city just wants to tear it down so they can build something else there. Mm -hmm. They're they're not looking at the house as, you know, the beautiful paneling, the brass fixtures, things like that. So the idea is that a lot of the antique dealers in Junktown go and scrounge these old houses before they get get torn down. Replace of condos or whatever. Yeah, exactly. To find these valuable items and then sell them. It's technically illegal... But the city doesn't really care, and unless and unless you have somebody sure. who's literally calling the police on you, no one's going to catch you. So Andy is not winning friends by the fact that he actually uh, is, did call is the calling police. the police on certain pe- on certain people. He's not calling the police on others. Oh. He's calling them on CC specifically, which is not uh, which is not fair. And Andy really, as you could probably tell, has a tendency to look down on people who don't adhere to his personal quote unquote code. Um, within the Cobb Mansion, we also have Ben Nichols, who's a supposed former actor, current flamboyant antique seller who owns the shop across the street. (laughs) If I had a nickel for every former actor I've known who sells antiques. Ain't it true? Um, (laughs) Iris and Cece's relationship is perplexing to Quill. He yells at her, she tape records his snoring, but they seem to have a happy enough marriage where she supports his every, every endeavor, and he, you know, complains about but eats her cooking constantly. So, wait... 
recording snoring? Yes, there's a whole scene where she records his snores. Um, it's just to show their marriage and how... It's a little bit... Uh, it, it's not the marriage that Quill would choose for himself. Let's put it that way. I see. Um, it also sets up the tape recorder, which comes back to play a, a, a part later. Oh, ah, okay. Um, Interesting. But, Laying seeds. I like it. Yeah. Quill settles into his new home with the cats, and the cats are loving being in the midst of antique heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, so he starts researching a story invest- slash investigating Andy Glantz's death by interviewing the various shop owners in Junktown, including a retired teacher of Andy's, a dealer who dresses all in white, a man named Russell Patch, who's a former partner of Andy's, uh, the three sisters, Clothra, Amberina, and Ivrine, who are all named, by the way, <laughs> for types of Art Nouveau glass, and at least one of which was sleeping with Andy or Cece Cobb or both. Who knows? <laughs> And I'm, one of which is sleeping with the other's husband. It's it's a whole thing. I, I was getting a little disappointed with the names. I'm sorry, with the simple ones like Cece Cobb and then Ben Nichols. And then these three sisters come in to save the day. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we have this strange newcomer who sells Tectiques. Tectiques. Yeah, his whole thing is that the idea that, you know, anything can become an antique. It's, it's kind of the idea from uh, Indiana Jones. Um, and mm. Rangers of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. then you take this, you take this watch, $10 from any merchant, bury it in the sand for a thousand years, becomes valuable. Okay. He's trying to speed up the process by, by saving modern tech, um, <laughs> and claiming that it's a tech tea. There's a whole thing about that too. I'll, okay. So, of course, and then in addition to this, he's also building his relationship with Mary Duckworth, mm. who's giving him insight into Andy's shop and their morals that are apparently more flexible than they first appeared. On one of his adventures to interview Ben Nichols in a shop, he's nearly Quill is nearly buried, buried under an avalanche of snow from the roof of, roof of Ben's shop. Oh no! Um, which wrenches one of Quillerin's knees. Um, fortunately, his recovery is aided by his landlady's impressive cooking, um, and made uncomfortable by his lack of mobility and the blatant sexual desire between his "quote unquote" dumpy landlady and her gruff husband at dinners. I this mean, is what up. helps him heal his knee. Well, actually, I was thinking the food is help, what's helping him heal his knee. Well, okay, for the, not the and sexual tension. Unfortunately, he can't escape the, the dinner theater <laughs> of, of the sexual tension. The dinner theater. <laughs> dinner theater sexual tension. That's it's performative. It, it's very performative if you're reading it. It's, it's mm-hmm. very much they're playing it up for, for somebody in front of them. They have an audience, so of course they're going to turn exactly, it up a bit. Exactly, uh, exactly. Okay, okay. Unfortunately, <laughs> however, it should be pointed out that said gruff husband doesn't actually live much past this awkward dinner. Mm. A few nights later, he doesn't come home after a scrounging expedition, and Mrs. Cobb and Quill go out at two in the morning to find him at the bottom of the stairs in the condemned house, crushed by a piece of walnut paneling. Oh, no. At this point, Mrs. Cobb, understandably, goes to pieces. And Mm -hmm. after this, much of Quill's non-investigative time for the rest of the the book is spent working to make make Cece's dream of Junktown preservation a reality, which is really nice. He talks with Mary, realizes there might have actually been witnesses to Andy's death. Mm. um, Or you know, witnesses to Andy's pre- prior to the death. A couple was apparently in Andy's shop to approve a chandelier that he was supposedly retrieving when he fell. Um, and he also learns that Andy was writing a book about a place very much like Junktown, and then he allowed his old school teacher and fellow antique shop owner to read. But he wouldn't oh. share with Mary. By the way, Mary is super pissed about the fact that she wasn't allowed to read the book. I understandable. Said, uh, said old school teacher is horrified by all the sex and drugs in the story and states that the real junk town couldn't possibly be like that or she'd pack up tomorrow. <laughs> but Quill's beginning to wonder how true Andy's suspicions might have been. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, this manuscript to this book that he's writing, totally missing. 
Quill then gets invited to go scrounging with Ben Nichols in an old theater to get a feel for what Junkers go through for some of their items. But he ends up narrowly surviving a railing, crashing loose and nearly dying. Quill does. Yes, Quill does. Oh, my. Quill, uh, the, this old theater has been condemned for a while. Mm-hmm. Ben and Quill escape relatively unharmed, and Ben takes Quill to a local pub where Ben buys drinks for the bar before jumping up to perform Shakespeare. I believe he's doing the winter of... Uh, this is the winter of our discontent. <laughs> that was the winter of our discontent. Yes. He's, he's very dramatic. He wears a top hat everywhere. There's a whole thing about Quiller and... Wait, um, hold on. It's a, he wears a top hat everywhere. Ben Nichols, yes. Okay. Ben Nichols wears a top hat everywhere. <laughs> no, I didn't think Quill. No. If Quill if Quill was wearing a top hat up until now, and this is the first time you dropped it, that'd be one uh, heck of a bomb. Exactly. But this is, no, Ben Nichols, that makes sense. Yes. Anyway, sorry. So Quill finds out later that the old theater that they went to has been deemed far too dangerous by the other junkers. And his suspicions about Ben increased because this theater was condemned in the 1940s and we're looking mm. at things in the 1960s because so she's writing contemporary. 20 years later, there's been a lot of deterioration. Yes. And the box that Ben said we're going to, Ben said that we're, they're going to go uh, try and retrieve the crest from was known as the ghost box, mm. which is why the theater was condemned. <laughs> that was where the rotting was first discovered. That was where, you know, the fact that they managed to survive is a miracle. Interesting. But he did. Suspicions about Ben increase. Mm-hmm. Iris Cobb, understandably, has gone back to uh, Chicago to be with her son and have the funeral for Cece. Mm-hmm. Um, so Quill agrees to run the to run the shop during a Christmas block party, which he got, which he's really the impetus for happening in Junktown. It's mm-hmm. a huge thing. Um, well, taking up the legacy of Cece, right? Yeah, taking up the yeah. legacy of Cece, giving Junktown a chance. Um, and while he's doing that, he runs into Rosie, who is the wife of his childhood friend and current editor, Arch Riker. So, Arch Riker. Arch Riker is the name of his editor. We've talked about him before. We have, yes. Yes. But Arch Riker's wife, Rosie. Uh, is Rosie a, Riker. Rosie Riker is a big time antiquer. There's a whole adorable misunderstanding earlier in the book um, where they're talking about Junktown before Quill realizes that junk means antiques. Hmm. Um Arch talks about Rosie going there every Saturday, and you know, it's a whole obsession. And he's like, I'm so sorry, I didn't know, thinking that he meant drugs. <laughs> I know, understand. Getting junk, as Getting, opposed to. Yes, junk versus junk. Junk. <laughs> anyway, Happens so he runs time. into Rosie, and she reveals that she and Arch were the customers that Andy was supposed to be retrieving the chandelier for. Mm. But the chandelier that she describes isn't the crystal chandelier that they found smashed around Andy's body. It's a brass one that they took home from their appointment, so the Fresh chandelier was already gone. Yeah. Now it's really looking like Andy's death was at least staged, mm-hmm. if nothing else. Coco manages to, un- you know, by the way, the cats are still here. Um, of course, Coco and Yum Yum are there. Are, are still going. Coco manages to discover a hidden compartment in an unused potbelly stove in Quill's apartment, oh. which reveals the missing manuscript of Andy Glantz's novel. The novel is apparently absolutely terrible, but... <laughs> It reveals a hidden drug seller whose customers would come asking for Quimper teapots when they wanted to buy drugs. Quill realizes that customers have been asking for horse brasses at various shops and particularly at Ben Nichols shops. That's the street name for crack, I'm guessing. I don't well, know. this is the code for how to buy the drugs. <laughs> so Ben has been selling drugs to fund, to, to fund his heavy drinking. Nobody's making much money on all of these antiques, as is established. Sure. Um, there's a whole big thing about a windfall of a uh, of selling a roll-top desk for $750 when it was barely worth $200. Go quilt. Um, <laughs> he, 
he did some lovely things for Iris and Cece Cobb. It was very sweet. Um, but anyway, so Ben obviously has to have a sideline to be funding buying drinks for an entire pub to, sure. for people to care about him reciting Shakespeare. And it becomes very obvious that the horse brasses are the codes for Ben Nichols' shop to cue to cue Ben that somebody is looking to buy the drugs. Mm-hmm. So to get a confession, Quill, ever the investigative reporter, invites Ben to his apartment and then plays Iris's tape recorder, which reveals that Cece has figured out Ben's scheme and was demanding a share of the profits to keep quiet. Ben realizes he's been caught, tries to attack Quill, but Coco manages to knock the Scottish coat of arms onto Ben before oh. he can. Oh. Go, Coco! Go, Coco and teach. Jeez. Yeah. It's it's very clear that at this point that Ben has that Ben is responsible for pushing not only Cece down the stairs, mm-hmm. um, but pushing Andy Glance off the ladder. Uh, so not pretty. No, Ben not is at all. arrested and confesses to killing both Andy and Cece, and Quill manages to hurt his other knee in the scuffle. But he wins the newspaper prize, and he's celebrating with Mary as the theme fades to black. Now, where does the typewriter come back in? I'm so sorry, I didn't mention it. That's so okay. That's the okay. reason they know that it's Andy's novel mm-hmm. is because. It was typed on a typewriter, missing an E. Ah. Sorry. So wherever there was words that had E's, it was just... It was all... It, it's, it, apparently, in typewriters, it would, if you were missing a key, it would skip above the line and give you an asterisk. Mm. Interesting. So oh. that was how they could tell. So Quill is reading oh. this novel. And of course, obviously, that's making his brain hurt, as it would make anyone's brain hurt, trying to read something Free, missing that's, a That's formatted, key. yeah. So, th- so that's how we knew it was Andy's. Interesting. Andy's okay. novel, aside from the fact that the story obviously reveals the Quimper Teapot's connection, sure, and all of that. There's there's a lot of other really obvious um, naive school teacher nymphomaniac shops owners. Um, the uh, the cold uh, the cold uh, woman the cold woman who's uh, who's secretly a member of a uh, of a prominent city family. Which, uh. by the way, the big secret about Mary Duckworth is that her name is not Duckworth, but Duxbury. Duxbury married the Penimans. We were talking about the Penniman Art School a couple mm-hmm. books ago. Um, Duxbury's Penimans, big names in this town with no name. So she's actually the hidden daughter of one of the wealthiest families in town. And interconnected to the uh, clan McDuck and yes, so on. Yes, sure. So, you know, it's <laughs> life is like a mystery. Life is like a mystery. <laughs> Here in Duckworth. <laughs> for the Duckworths. Anyway, interesting. Okay, so... so but, you know, Quill gets his canoodling on, and, and uh, that in the scene fades to black. So we have the victims. We have Andy Glanz, uh, Cece Cobb, oh. and then there, you have a random street bum in here. In my notes, there's a random street bum who died. Um, when Quill is first looking in the windows about the auction for the, uh, for, for the deceased dealers, mm-hmm. for Andy's dece- items, a bum comes up to him and tells him that the, you know, that Andy was murdered horribly and... Very drunk. Doesn't believe um, him because he's yeah, a bum of course, and he's drunk. Because he's a bum, he's drunk. Sure, sure. And then suddenly the bum is found, and, and a few pages later, the bum is found dead. Oh no! Turns out that's actually a coincidence. Bum just died. Oh, so interesting. So there was no connection whatsoever. Absolutely no connection whatsoever. Just bad luck. Ah. Um, which again speaks to the fact that Lily Jackson Brown writes a good mystery. She does. So she, in that red herring out there. Absolutely, great red herrings. Um, and she never quite, she never kills people the same way twice, at least especially in these early books. Some of the later books become, that, that becomes a bit more of an issue. Well, but, that kind of goes into the, you know, the kill method. We have Andy, he's pushed off a ladder mm-hmm. and into, onto uh, the, uh, the, the spike and everything. Yeah. That just sounds terrible. Absolutely. 
And lots of pushing. Yes, but it's also the fact that it's the same person doing the pushing. Yes, this uh, is, yes, yes, this, yes. This is this is you know he's one he's one death short of a serial killing. Um, it's three you need for a serial three killing. Three for a serial killing. Okay. Two is just a repeat performance. We'll go with what you know. They say. Absolutely. <laughs> Play to your strengths. I'll, I'm going to push him. I'm going pu- to push him. <laughs> Thank you, John Mulaney. I'm going to push him. Anyway. All right. So this is our. You know. It's not the last book in our Metropolis with no name. Um, we actually have two more books that are at least partially set in the in Metropolis with Before no name. Before we get to Pickaxe. Before we get to Pickaxe. Interesting. Okay. So the big thing for this book is the introduction of Iris Cobb, which she could be a total write-off character. She's not. She ha- plays a major part in Quill's transition in Pickaxe later. Mm. Well, so, we'll, so we will see her again. But this is our first introduction to her. And unfortunately, it's like someone wrote a doormat made human and gave it a lace collar and reading glasses. Quill literally moans that it's not, he bemoans that not every woman can be born with a perfect figure and then spends the rest of the book gloriously describing her cooking. This is is the Jimmy Soul song brought to life. Jesus. I maintain the fact that you don't trust a skinny cook. I'll give you that. The way that Iris's food is described through all of these books, by Quill, by others, it is absolutely heavenly. Um, the the woman knows her way around a kitchen, and her figure happens to reflect that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. So I, you know, despite being a very loving character, she is consistently unlucky. It's mm. it's honestly depressing. And she's described as very very needy. Which, to be fair, if you're constantly being unlucky and you know, Cece was her second husband, right? Um, and her first husband, you know, died under mysterious circumstances as well. I mean, the woman is not doing well. No, she, so, I'd be a little needy, too, I'd in that be a regards. little needy for people, yeah. too. Exactly. We also, by the way, meet her, meet, kind of meet her son, Dennis, um, from her first marriage. Again, Cece was her second husband, who will, by the way, play a role in the later book. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, this is, this book, more than any others, um, Quill is really, Quill is, Quill and Lillian Jackson Braun are establishing ground rules mm-hmm. for the rest of the series. It's very clear that she was thinking about something further when she was writing this book. She had an mm-hmm. end game or something in mind. Yeah, to she happen had later. an idea for a series that, you know, for whatever reason, twenty years she for twenty years she she held off on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then jumped right back in as if nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. So impressive for a writing staff. Obviously for notable cats for this book we have Coco and Yum Yum back again. Yep. Both of whom prove adept at hiding themselves and finding toothbrushes. Toothbrushes run throughout the book. They keep finding Andy's old toothbrushes, losing Quillerin's toothbrushes, mm-hmm. stealing Ben Nichols' toothbrushes, finding Andy Gla- finding Andy's toothbrushes, finding Quill's toothbrush. The toothbrush is a thing. So it's a toothbrush. It's a thing with the cats. Yes. By the way, Yum Yum also catches her first mouse in this book. Oh. She's well, very proud. Go for Yum. Go Yum Yum. That's wonderful. Yes. There's a wonderful commentary about uh, about cats and ownership with where Quill says, no one ever owns a cat. You share a communal habitation on the basis of equal rights and mutual respect. Although the cats always seem to come out ahead in that deal, <laughs> which I, if you have ever lived with a cat, it's, it's been it's really been quite some time. But that uh, all the childhood cats that I grew up with, it Boots, Bert, Mitch, uh, it definitely <laughs> it definitely does uh, does uh, check all those boxes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we also have notable food in this book, particularly. Oh, yes. um, this is the first appearance of Mrs. Cobb's famous apple pie. When we get to pickaxe and 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 Iris joins him up there. The pie is a thing. Mm. The pie is a thing. It has it 
brings hobos to float and waft over to uh, sample this pie on the windowsill. It is saintly. It, it, you mm. know, she she does something that I think of as a very Midwestern um, tactic, which is grating cheddar cheese over the apple pie. Oh, that is very much a Midwestern and also a New England thing, I think. Mm. Either way, um, it's it's very distinctive um, to how Quillerin likes his pie. It might be a German thing now that I think about it, because my mother loves yeah. a slice of a slice of cheddar cheese on pie, put it in the microwave for a few seconds, so it's all melty and gooey. Yeah. She loves that, and to me that apples I, and cheese and mm-hmm, and and the crust and everything. Yeah, I've never tried it myself, but well, something to something to consider. Thanksgiving's coming up. It's true. Not that you um, need an the excuse other for thing pie, that gets mentioned but. that I I really want to actually try is walnut brownies. Walnut brownies. Mm. Mm, that does sound good. I love walnuts. Uh, oh, no, I, again, the way that that Iris Cobb's food is described is heavenly. <laughs> so it's it, it it seems unjust to me that this character who can create such heavenly food is relegated to the unlucky. Kind of dumped on. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. The only redeeming quality is the fact that she's a good cook is what they make it sound like. Very clearly. Which is terrible. She's yes. got, She sounds like a lovely person. Exactly. And it, it's, a, it's a waste of great descriptions of food, which I am always here for. <laughs> this is part of the fun of cozy mysteries. Uh, you'll notice a lot of cozy mysteries have, have center around food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, well, I, I'll kind of vamp a little bit, because while you're talking about food in these uh, fictional worlds, I one podcast I listen to and I love very much is The Flophouse, and they always kind of make, well, not always, but they make a joke to George R. R. Martin and the... Song of Ice and Fire books, and it's always, let's not talk about the plot and advance the characters. Hold up. Let's talk about what they were eating. Talk about their <laughs> food, because that's more important. And it seems like that food plays an important part in these, but it's not, you're not world building with that. You're just establishing a character trait. You're making it, like you say, seem heavenly. It's very delicious sounding food. Food and murder mysteries go together. Yes. Hand in love. Um, it's, well, the, we go back to the, a little bit of the Agatha Christie series we were watching on Hulu, a murder is announced. Mm-hmm. One of the food dishes they talk about is this chocolate cake that one of the characters makes called Delicious Death. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge component of the series. Absolutely. All right. So back to thoughts about these particular books. As I mentioned, this is not one of my favorite in the series. Mm-hmm. There, are, But it's very clear that with this book, she's laying the ground rules for her series to come. And so it's kind of surprising that after this, she would take a 20-year break. But very much so. one thing that is probably good the fact that Quill keeps having to move every book is already wearing thin. Third book, this is annoying. This, Yeah, this is getting old. I have to wonder if she'd remained in the city setting, if he'd have to spend a book without the cats because he couldn't find a place to live. Oh. Which would not have ended well. Well, then it doesn't become the cat who. It's the Quill, it's the quill who. Yeah, it's the Quill who, or, you know, Quill trying to get back to the cats, which is mean. The Quill who listened to classic rock music. Exactly. It just kind of goes off. Um, but it would have been interesting to see how many identifiable parts of town she could have come up with. We've, we've talked about fine artists. We've talked about interior designers. We've got antique dealers. We've got something coming up in the next book that because the next book is still set in the metropolis of New Name. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she you know she lived in a metropolis. She lived in Detroit. She worked for the Detroit Free Press. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very clear that she based her writing on those kind of things. Sure. So it would have been interesting to see how far she could have gone with it, but the having to move every book would have gotten really old. I think, yeah, the next book... If it, if it had gone much further than it, than it currently does, I think it would have really been frustrating. 
There is one other notable dealer that I didn't really mention because she only gets one scene in the entire book. Mm -hmm. And it's sad because she's hysterical. Um, this is Mrs. Katzenhide. Oh, yes. With, Isn't it a great name? With a name like that. Yeah. Oh, come she on. She is a rich widow who, owned, who runs a shop who specializes in camp. Kemp. Camp. Oh, camp. Camp. Now, I heard camp. No, no. Sorry, camp. So C-A-M-P. C-A-M-P. And right. camp is hard to describe at the best of times, but this is actually one of the better descriptions of camp that I have ever found, mm -hmm. which is wit, whimsy, and a gentle thumbing of the nose. You either, quote-unquote, dig it or you don't. Ah. It's the 60s. That's a great description of camp. I agree. And it's off-kilter. It's not quite matching. I mean, we, we were introduced to her shop by a prominent judge in town coming out the door with a stuffed octopus. <laughs> I that, like it. And that describes everything about camp. So she has one scene, she gives a whole slew of information about Andy and everything else, and then never talks again. Mm. Another thing that strikes me about this particular book that is, again, very 60s, is the writing about women as nymphomaniacs. Mm. I, I question this as, you know, women with a healthy sex desire. But remember, we're writing about a male main character who does not like to be pursued. Mm. So the idea of a woman who actively goes after her sexual desires would be absolutely abhorrent to him. And seen very much in the extreme being, oh, she's a nympho. That's exactly. all she wants. All she mm. wants is sex. The interesting trick about this one is in this case, I almost think she's writing about a female sexual predator. The, really? uh, the, the, this particular character is literally going after every man. It's like clockwork. Hmm. And this is which character again? This is, <laughs> this is Clethra. Clethra. Oh, this is one of the sisters. This is one of the sisters. Yes. Ah, okay, okay. Yes, you, you, had, to love the, you had to love those names. Clethra, um, yes. Clethra. She's, you know, she's described as a voluptuous redhead. But there is a scene in which her attempt to put the moves on Quillerin is actually foiled by Coco. <laughs> oh, what, oh, what um, Coco do? She turns out to be allergic to cats. Oh, that's a deal breaker for Quill. I'm but sorry. But you've got you've to gotta realize, <laughs> the man brought his cat on what she was trying to turn into a date. He really doesn't like being pursued. <laughs> I mean, she's described as meeting him at the door of her apartment in this voluminous uh, marabou-trimmed uh, <laughs> chiffon thing. Um, you can you can see it if you if you imagine nineteen sixties nightwear. Oh, I'm, I, I mean she's she's wearing the big giant fluffy thing. The, oh, of course. And Coco is sneaking around, and then we realize that she's allergic to cats. Oh no! It, it's really actually a very funny scene, but it's <laughs> again, Quill really doesn't like being pursued, so it's kind of fun that he manages to bring his cat on what's on very clearly date. trying to be a date. <laughs> But she's also, I, I kind of wonder if she's trying to drug him because she she gives him like choked cherry syrup and things and suddenly mm. he's too warm and he's feeling dizzy and everything else. And then suddenly the evening ends because Coco gets him out of it. Mm. So this is, this, well, is so where I, this is where my sexual predator idea comes in because the whole thing with her, you know, signature choked cherry syrup. Sure. Um, and suddenly Quill's not, Quill's dizzy and not seeing very well. It, it raises a few red flags. It raises several red flags. Yeah. Um, from a female perspective, which is interesting. This book also establishes a lot of scenes mentioning a sensation in the roots of Quill's mustache. This becomes a running thing throughout the series, um, where man and cat are frequently compared through their sensitivities. Um, Quill, With their whiskers. Yes. Interesting. Quill gets, you know, gets a sensation in his mustache. Coco 
um, is is supposed to be hypersensitive because of his, you know, most cats have 48 whiskers. Coco has 60. Oh. This this is a huge thing. Um, I also didn't know that cats had that many. They don't normally. Like I said, they usually have 48. 48 um, still is you, a lot to me. If you assume from, from eyebrows down, uh, down uh, to uh, down okay, front, okay, okay. That they've makes got sense. 48 whiskers, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, Coco has 60. So he's hypersensitive. And that there's a lot of comparison of Coco's whiskers to Quill's whiskers uh, and how that keeps both of them sensitive and Quill following a hunch and all of these things, which, which you know, follow, creates a really interesting dynamic for a detective. I would say so. That is, yeah, interesting. Getting a hunch in a different, a different kind of, a different kind of way of getting a huncher stumbling upon something if he's essentially, for lack of a better term, has mustache sense. Exactly. He has mustache sense because the fact remains Quill, despite being an investigative reporter, is an amateur investigator. He's not a detective. Mm -hmm. He is not a policeman. He is in no way, shape, or form um, legally obligated to do the investigations that he does. Sure. And this becomes a thing when he moves to pickaxe, when, you know, people are telling him it, it's a small town, quit quit raising all the dust. But in the big city, even though people are telling him that, he's much less inclined to listen. Hmm. It is that he's following a hunch. And that's a thing that's usually resolved for female slu- for female amateur sleuths. Mm-hmm. We, you don't usually find um, a male sleuth who is an amateur. As we talked about in the very first episode, most of the time, male sleuths are professionals. You know, retired reti- professionals. Retire, are... retired, mm-hmm. no, retired detectives, retired police officers who are spending their golden years tracking down crime still. Mm-hmm. Quill's always been an amateur. Mm-hmm. He's a good amateur, but he's got those. He's got that sensitivity either from his mustache or just really good instincts. Interesting, and that's what makes him still a very compelling character. Again, while this is not my favorite of the books, it lays so much groundwork. Realizing it's he, kind of, it, I guess you could describe it. It's still a mystery, but it's almost like if you're talking about it like episodic TV, it's a filler. It's it's yeah. plot. It's plot heavy yeah. where it's establishing seeds for something that's coming up later on in Absolutely. a bunch of future books. That's a great description. So then with that, then, where would you rank this out of paws? How many paws would you give this one? Barely two. Ba- oh, wow. I really don't like it. I, I mean, for all of it, it, again, for all of the seeds that it lays, it's important. For a read, it's not a lot of fun. Mm, interesting. Mary Duckworth is not an interesting character. She's not an interesting <laughs> love interest. And quite frankly, by this point, it's kind of annoying watching 40 to 50-year-old Quill, we're never sure how old he is, um, hitting on 20-year-olds. Now, granted, Mary is a little bit older than some than than Koki or whoever he hit on in the first book. Um, oh yes, Co- call me Koki, and then it becomes call me Al. Yes, call me Al. But anyway, Mary is at least closing in on thirty. But heaven forbid she get there. Oh, but yeah, thirty-one. Forget it. Yeah, no, they 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 when they talk about Mary being the daughter of somebody important in town, Quill calls the society writer at the paper. Hmm. Um. And just idly asks about the Duxbury family. And, sure. Uh, they say, oh, yeah, five daughters, all named after English queens, um, <laughs> all married, uh, except for the youngest. And he said, oh, what's the youngest name? Mary. Mary. And that's how he figures out that she's actually the daughter of someone very important. I see. Um, the description that the society writer gives, though, is great. It's, she came out about ten years ago and seems to have gone right back in. <laughs> Oh, debutantes. Indeed. Debutantes, so debutantes. It, it's fun. It's it, it's playing into that society norm slash not norm. Sure. One of the fun things that, that happens at the end is that Mary actually gets given the responsibility of uh, of making of putting Junktown on the map. 
um, working with the mayor, working with her father, who's a bank, who's a famous banker. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually gets the responsibility of doing all of the things that Cece was trying to do but couldn't. Interesting. And she wouldn't want to because she didn't want to bring attention to her family name. Quill, however, makes her realize that, you know, by using her family name, she can actually save this part of town that she loves so much, which she very clearly does. Again, all of, all, all of these seeds that have gotten laid for the rest of the series, and we'll come back to this and talk about how many seeds were laid in this particular book when we get to some of the later ones. But you have to lay the seeds, and that may not always be yeah. fun to read or fun to, to see happening. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think your description of this as a filler book is really accurate. So two out of four paws. Two out of four paws for this one. Still and, worth the read. Hey, no, good, good. And now we have a 20-year gap before the next one. And Absolutely. so those who may be reading along or interested, what is the next book in the series the, 20 years later? The next book 20 years later is The Cat Who Saw Red. The cat. Ooh, I remember the cover of this one very distinctly. Mm-hmm. The Cat Who Saw Red. All right. So any closing thoughts as we're wrapping up on The Cat Who Turned On and Off? I think the descri- you're describing it as a filler book actually makes me see it much more clearly as fitting into the series. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about, I think there are going to be several of these books as we go along. I mean, there are 29 books in the series. Right. So we'll, ha- we'll have to see how many books we can label as filler books versus books that actually advance the story. So that should be, that, that's, an, that's an interesting way to go. Um, and again, my short answer on this book is, so many seeds laid for future books. <laughs> Not my favorite read of the series. So we'll see how much they pay off in the next 20, uh, 20 years later for the next book. Absolutely. And the next book and the next book. Well, wonderful. Another one in the bag. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. This was The Cat Who Did a Podcast. And join us next time for The Cat Who Saw Red. I'm Luke Romsdorf-Terry. And I'm Susan Romsdorf-Terry. And until then, happy sleuthing. Happy sleuthing.